All right. Well, good morning, everybody. That's the, really? I expected more from the 1030 service. Good morning, everybody. Okay. I realize I've had several hours on you to, to just get this energy going, but hey, so grateful to be with you guys today. Grateful to have our two campuses together right now as a family living together in one house. So if someone was in your seat today, thank you for forgiving them and uh, thank you for making room for them. But I want to just give a quick shout out too and just say uh, we had our, our first Freedom Conference this last weekend. And so, yeah, it was a great, great time together. I want to give a shout out to all the volunteers who served at it. Thank you guys so much. And uh, everybody who came, I know we'll be doing more in the future, but um, I thought we had a great first one. So I want to honor people that were involved in that. And then we're in a series uh, called Old Wells Fresh Water. And if you're new to us, that is a odd name. I realize that. But hopefully, um, if this is your first Sunday, you'll understand here in just a minute where God gave me this idea from. And it really came from Genesis chapter 26. And I'll give you, I read the whole passage last week, but I'm just going to give you a little bit of it today. Because in Genesis 26, we see that Isaac is being blessed, like he's sowing and reaping a hundred times what he sowed, and God is just blessing him and his cattle and in his servants, and in, and in almost every area, he's just growing in this wealth. And the Philistines get jealous of him, so they start filling in the wells his father Abraham had dug with dirt. And, and this is really the theme of the, past, I mean, of the whole series, is in these two verses in Genesis 26 verses uh, 18 here, 19. It says, he reopened, this is what Isaac did, he reopened the wells his father had dug, which the Philistines had filled in after Abraham's death. Isaac also restored the names Abraham had given them. Then in verse 19, it says, I'm sorry, try again, verse 19. Isaac's servants also dug in the Gerar Valley and discovered a well of fresh water. And the reason I, I love this series, and I love this passage, is what was happening was so incredible to me that Isaac was being blessed so much because of his father, Abraham. There was a generational blessing that was happening, and he was being blessed to this incredible degree, but he did not settle for that blessing. He reopened the wells his father had dug that had been providing this fresh water to them for a long time, yet he still dug new wells. They continued to dig new, fresh well, so they could have more fresh water. And it's a picture of the fact that we can sometimes just settle for the great things that we have and forget about digging new wells for the future. And the reason that this is an important series for us, and this is why I wanted to do it while we came together, is because our church has a history of 30 plus years of digging deep wells. And much of what we're, the fruit that we are benefiting from today is from the wells that our fathers had dug 30 plus years ago. Yet we're not settling for those wells. God is calling us to dig new wells for fresh water for the future. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He does things generationally, and which gets me excited about our past, what God has done. But the future is still even better. No matter how great the past of this church was, and it has a rich history that you need to know about, there is still a greater future ahead of us for what God is doing. And so that gets me pretty excited. And I hope it gets you excited too, because you're a part of it. You're a part of digging these new wells for future generations to have fresh water. And so last week, we talked about the well of the Holy Spirit. And the reason that I wanted to use this language, I think it's important we understand wells, because today, none, very few of us probably go to a well, if any of us, and get water out to drink. And uh, we just turn the water on, and it happens. 
But wells meant a lot in that day, right? Wells represented a place of rest and refreshment where people could come to get water in a very dry area. In fact, it only rained for a few months out of the year and there weren't many rapidly flowing rivers for fresh water. So these wells became very, very important. And just like you hear that there's Abraham's well and then there's Isaac's well that you see in scripture, even in Genesis 26, they represented to people, to God's people that God had provided before for my father. That's the well I'm drinking from. And he's gonna provide again in the future. It was God's provision generationally. But one of the things I love most about the picture of a well is that they represent the opportunity to access a vast underground supply that you can't see on the surface. Wells are small on the surface, right? They're not huge, but you don't know how deep and how wide that well is. And I think that's a beautiful picture of our church is that there is some depth in this church. There is some history in this church and we're accessing a deep underground supply of what God has been doing here in East Texas for many, many years. And so, like I mentioned, last week we talked about the well of the Holy Spirit. And and I just pray that if you didn't have a chance to be here last week, you had a chance to go back and listen or watch because your relationship with the Holy Spirit is vital for your walk with the Lord. But this week, I want to look at another well that was dug many, many years ago. And that's the well of truth. We have always been a, a church who has built on the foundation of God's word as the truth and the standard for our lives. And that may, may be so, never been as important as it is today because we live in a culture and a world today where people will tell you that truth is relative, right. that you need to do your truth. And your truth may be different from my truth, but as long as you like your truth and your truth feels good to you, you need to do your truth. But the problem with that is, is when truth generates from within me, I begin to base my truth on my feelings instead of God's word. Right when, I, when truth generates from within and it's founded on my own experience instead of God's word, I become God who lays the moral compass for my life. And there's so many people who are in that place today where truth has become relative, which means there is no single source of truth. It, even the fact that we say there's a right and a wrong means there's a moral compass that we have to look at to determine whether something is right or wrong. Everything can't be right and everything can't be wrong, right? There's gotta be some baseline that we're looking at. There is a single source of truth for our lives and that is the word of God. It is the standard for truth. And so one of the scriptures we've built this church on is 2 Corinthians three sixteen that says, all scripture is inspired by God. It was divinely written. It's under the inspiration of God. That word also means God breathed. In other words, by the power of his Holy Spirit, he inspired men to write his words so that we can read them today. And it is useful for what? To teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. It is, it is the foundation that does all of these things for what purpose? Look at this, verse 17. God uses it to prepare and equip his people for every good work. You know, we read scriptures like Ephesians 2.10 that says that God has laid out these great works for us for that we could walk in them in the future. But what equips us and empowers us to do that is his word as it corrects us, as it changes us, as it transforms us. We become who he created us to be so that we can walk out these good works. Let me show you three things in this passage that God's word does. One is it teaches us what is truth. This goes back to what I was telling you. There has to be a moral compass of what truth is. And if you don't know that the word of God is truth, then you'll just make up your own truth. 
And when you read the word of God, what it does is it exposes our beliefs or popular beliefs versus God's beliefs. It exposes what we believed as lies versus what is truth. Oftentimes it exposes in me what I want to be truth yet isn't founded in the word of God. It's been based on my feelings. The second thing that it does we see in this passage is it corrects us when we're wrong. Now, no, no one likes this one. Y'all probably read that and just didn't listen because nobody likes to be corrected. But the word of God, when we read it and we realize some area of our life that we're out of line with our thinking, with our actions, with our lifestyle, with something in our heart that's wrong, with our attitude, we have to correct it to the word of God. It, it corrects us. We don't create a word that lines up with our, with our lives. We line up our lives with the word. This is why it's so important that you realize it's here to correct you in a loving way. And then the third thing it does that we see here is it keeps us from sin. David said in Psalm 119, your word have I hidden in my heart so I will not sin against you. I've stored up your words. I've treasured them within me so that it keeps me from sin. The very fact that there is such a thing as sin means that there is a right and a wrong. How do you know what sin is if you don't know what right is? It's found in the word of God. And the thing about God's word, the reason that it's the standard and the, the, the compass for truth for our life is because it is, it is the only living book in the history of the world. It is the only living book because it was written by a living God who is still alive. Every other book that was written by any religious leader was written by somebody who either is dead or will be dead. But this book is alive. God's word is still speaking today to each and every one of us because it is living and powerful. Hebrews 4.12 says it this way, that the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword and it cuts between soul and spirit and between joint and marrow and it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. What I love about this is, is that when I read his word, when I look at it as a foundation of truth in my life and as the moral compass, it reveals where my soul's desires are and where the spirit's desires are. Remember last week we talked about how the Holy Spirit helps us to desire what God desires? Well, we find that in his word. And it, it, it transforms me because I realize that's my flesh wanting this, but this is what his word says. And it exposes us, not in a negative way, but in a positive way. It reveals the error of our thinking. I often say it this way, the word of God is the only book that as you read it, it's reading you. It's reading you. It's saying, hey, here's the thing that we need. This is a little bit off base. How would you know what's off base if there's no moral compass for truth, right? This is why it's so important that you realize that our church has a rich history and will continue to have a history of building on the truth of God's word. But here's where it gets interesting theologically. Because God inspired men to write his words, which is the word of God, yet in John 1, we see that Jesus is also the word. Look at John 1, 1. In the beginning, the word already existed. It's a capital W, so it represents it's who Jesus is. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. Then the next verse says, God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him, the word gave life to everything that was created. And look at this. And his life brought light to everyone. Now this next verse is powerful to me. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. 
Jesus is the word. He is the light. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he, as God, was declaring, I'm the truth. The word of God is the truth because I am the word. I'm also the light. This is the powerful part about what light does is it exposes the darkness. It, it, it shows you areas in your life that you were once in darkness before, but now the light has come and it corrects our life to see oh, that was in the dark, this is what the light says. That means this is what truth says for my life. I'm trying to help you understand that there must be a moral compass for our life. There must be a foundation for truth. And we have to have a source, and that is the word of God. And for our church and for our lives, we have been building on the truth of the word of God. That is one of the deep wells, but not just the truth of the word of God, but the grace of God. And this is where Jesus said he came in grace and truth. Look here in, a little bit further in John 1.14. This is the same chapter, just a little further down. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He didn't come with a little bit of grace and a lot of truth or a lot of truth or a little bit of truth and a lot of grace. He came full of grace and truth. If you read just a couple verses later in verse 17, he says that Moses gave us the law, but Jesus comes in grace and truth. What that's not saying, by the way, is that because Moses gave the law, we no longer see anything about the law. No, Jesus said that I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. I just came to fulfill it with grace and truth. I'm not getting rid of truth, I'm fulfilling truth, but I'm bringing it with 100% grace. This is an important principle for us to understand because in today's culture, what a lot of people do is they tend to swing the pendulum one way or the other. They'll say, well, Jesus came in grace, so I'm gonna be all about grace. Or Jesus came in truth, so I'm gonna be all about truth. And grace people, we all like to be around grace people. Right? Well, we love grace people because they don't ruffle any feathers. They cut us a lot of slack. You know, they, they accept us for, for who we are. They don't make any demands on our life. And God knows no one likes demands made on their life, right? So we love grace people. And that's, that's, that's good, except for without truth, there's no such thing as grace. Why would you need grace if there was no truth to find out that I'm falling short in this area? That's where grace comes in, Right? So truth actually reveals our need for grace. When we find out that there's truth and we sometimes fall short of that, it reveals, oh man, we need grace. But if you're only focused on grace, it leads to tolerance. And then the lines between right and wrong get blurred and there is no moral compass anymore. That's why we say it this way, that grace without truth and you cover up. And that leads to lawlessness. You just begin to sweep everything under the rug. There's nothing wrong. There is no right or wrong. And that leads to a lawless culture. And that's where a lot of people are today, that there is this lawlessness that's going crazy in our culture because you can't say something's right or something's wrong. How dare you say that? So everybody becomes lawless when it's like this. And people who are focused on hyper grace, we love to be around it, but they never help us change. They never help us become who God created us to be. But on the other hand, people who are just truth-focused, we can admire these people because they're very strong, they're very bold, they're, they're easy to admire, they hold up convictions and principles, they set standards, and they speak out against injustice and oppression. But truth people without grace, they can use truth as an excuse to become belligerent. They can use truth as an excuse to be a jerk, to put it nicely, 
And they'll just come beating you up with the Bible, which was never meant to be a weapon against people, but a weapon against the enemy, right? And when you're, when you're like this, it, it leads to, well, it leads to legalism. Truth without grace, you beat people down, and it leads to this extra biblical heavy burdens that you put on people. Legalism is when you take the law to the nth degree and you put extra things, rituals, extra burdens, extra heavy loads on people. Truth people, they want to help you change, but they don't allow for mistakes and they're very quick to judge. And if you find that you're a person that's constantly judging people, you may need to examine this area of your life. This is where the Pharisees were, by the way. They, they were the people who would use the law to beat other people down. They were the people who were belligerent, heavy-handed. They were oppression-oriented. They were constantly putting these rules on people because they wanted to look perfect themselves. And they thought, if I keep every law, that I'll look perfect and you'll think I'm right. And Jesus had a problem with that. That's why he was always confronting them. That's why Jesus came in grace and truth, not to get rid of truth, but to come in grace and truth. And in truth, he exposes the areas of our lives that need to be transformed. He exposes the lies that we've listened to where we're living in darkness, but also he gives grace to help us live in the light. And this is why you need grace and truth, because with grace and truth, you lift people up. And it leads to life. This is the life Jesus was talking about. He came to bring life and life more abundantly. And when you're a grace and truth person, you lift people. You don't beat them down. You don't just sweep their sin under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. But you lift them up and help them experience the life of God that he created them to live. I love the way in John chapter 8 says it. Again, this is further down in John 8. It says, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. This is what we were talking about earlier. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in the darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. This is that picture of grace and truth. It brings light and it brings life. Now, how many of you know we've all walked in darkness before? Spiritually and physically. If you've ever physically just walked in darkness, it's dangerous. I mean, you could, you could get hurt, right? It, you, you trip over things. If you have kids, you've gotten up in the middle of the night because something happened and you were going to help them and you stepped on something. If you've ever stepped on a Lego in the middle of the night, what's in you will come out of you, right? <laughs> That's when you're like, oh, there's an area I didn't know I had, you know? <laughs> so you step on something and it hurts in the dark and you're like, why didn't I see that? Well, you're in the dark. Then you're mad at your kids for leaving their Legos out. It's a whole other story and a whole other message. But the, the reason that we don't want to walk in darkness is it's dangerous. We can get hurt, right? Light exposes the things that are there that could hurt us. Now, I, I was thinking about this this last week as well. I have this vacuum, and I love my vacuum. It has a light on the front of it. It's beautiful. My wife is amening over here. I mean, the vacuum's not beautiful. That's how you know you, you're kind of middle-aged at this point. You get excited about vacuums. Um, but I was, <laughs> I am middle-aged, aren't I? Okay. So I was, I was vacuuming, and I vacuum with the lights on. And, and I'm seeing air. I'm like, all right, there's nothing over there, but you know, I'm just going to go ahead anyway and vacuum. But as I get closer, the light on my vacuum begins to reveal some disgusting things up against the wall, like dust bunnies and dirt. I couldn't see it from across the room. But as the light of the vacuum got closer, I was like, my goodness, that was there the whole time? I was embarrassed. I mean, nobody's home. It was just me. But I'm embarrassed at what's been there the whole time. And this is the thing about light. That light wasn't trying to embarrass me. 
It was just revealing what I couldn't see before. It was just revealing the dirt that from across the room, I didn't even know was there. And it helped me to know what areas I needed to get cleaned up. This is why we need God's word, as the Bible says, as the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. But you need to know that it's not a light that lights up your path. It lights up his path, which means you can still be walking in darkness and you need to look where the light is so that you can know where to step because it, it illuminates his way, not our way. And, th and that's the thing that sometimes we have a challenge with. We ask God, come light up my path. How about you light up your path, Lord, so I can course correct and start walking where the light is. This is what his word does for us. We begin to see the rest of our life through the filter of that light. But as you know, light can also be harsh sometimes. If you've ever been in the dark and the light gets turned on abruptly, it hurts. It's like, wow, that's harsh. I personally dealt with this a lot as a kid. And uh, my mom used to do this to me. She would come in in the morning and she would just flip on the lights and open the blinds and start singing in a loud voice. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's time to rise and shine. And I'd be like, you know, the other one she sang, I can't, she helped me in the first one. It was like, rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. It was harsh. I, I did not like it. It was not welcome. Uh, I, re I wish, I told, I told her, I said, I wish I was more mature when I was younger because now I know Bible verses and I know one in Proverbs that says to sing early in the morning to your neighbor should be counted as a curse. And I was like, that's what you were doing to me, you know, just let the truth set you free here. Um, but it scarred me so much that to this day, I don't wake my kids up that way. Even this morning, I was thinking about it. I go and I'll turn on the hall light or a closet light and I'll go sit next to the bed and I'll, hey, sweetheart, it's time to get up. You know, I may have to sit five minutes, but I'm gonna get her up in a gentle way. And then as her eyes adjust to the light, she could get up and move around the house. It's not harsh. I was scarred. I, you know, maybe I went too far. Some freedom is happening in people's lives today, you know. And we're not allowed to sing those songs in my house today. You can ask, my wife will stop like, uh-uh, no, no, that's not allowed. That brings up deep wounds um, that I went to the Freedom Conference for. Uh, but, but I think that's actually a beautiful picture of how Jesus is. The light comes on slowly so that it's not harsh, but it begins to reveal areas that we need to adjust. It begins to reveal areas in our life where we need to walk. He's the picture of light that also warms and exposes. It warms us and draws us close, but it exposes and says, hey, here's what's going on. And, and in this passage where Jesus said that he was the light of the world, it's one of the I am statements in John that he made out of seven I am statements. He said, I am the light of the world, but this was coming. Most people don't see this. It's coming on the end of another story we often read. It happened. That's why it says Jesus spoke to the people once more because he was speaking to them before. Let's back up and look in John chapter eight, verse three, because I think this is a beautiful picture of Jesus in grace and truth. It says, as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they put her in front of the crowd. Now, can we stop and just picture this moment? It'd be like if I was here at church and I'm speaking and these guys come in and bring a woman who was caught in the act of adultery and throw her at the altar right here. Now, first of all, how did they catch her in the act of adultery? Where were they? Because this doesn't happen in an open square. They were lying in wait. They were trying to trap her and they brought her and threw her in front of a crowd, probably 
half naked or completely naked at this point. Incredibly shaming and incredibly embarrassing. Then it goes on, and this is what they said to him. Said, teacher, they said, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law says, the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And what they were doing in this moment is they, they were trying to set Jesus up. They were trying to trap him by saying, look, this is what the law says. If you don't do this, then people will be like, well, he doesn't believe in the law. He's breaking the law. You know, if he does do it, they're going to be like, he's confirming the law and everything we're doing is right. They were trying to trap him. And that's not deep. That's what the next verse says. They were trying to trap him. I know y'all were like, man, he's getting some revelation. No, it's just, it's right here. Just read the Bible. They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. And they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And it goes on and he says that he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, They slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Now, there's a lot of speculation on what was he writing. And a lot of scholars believe that he was writing the sins of these men who were bringing her to him. Because of the word that was used there meant to to write an account. So they believe that he was writing an account of their sins. Now, I actually just was thinking about this between the service And I think this is so fascinating to me. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus was getting down into the dirt to write their sin on the same level playing field that they had thrown her. He was trying to prove to them, your sin is no different than the sin that you're doing right here. You're throwing her on the floor in the dirt, and I'm going to write your sin in the dirt. Then the Bible says that one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they walked away. Now, who knows why the oldest to the youngest? It could be because the older you are, the wiser you are. You recognize, I got, uh, yeah, I have messed up a little bit. The younger you are, you probably don't realize that as much. You still think you haven't done anything wrong. But I think it was because the older they were, the more they had to lose. The more they were higher up in the religious area that they realized if this gets exposed, I've got a lot to lose here. Maybe I don't need to push this issue any further. But then we see what happened here in the very next verse, this powerful verse we all know of, that Jesus stood up again after they had all cleared out and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said, and Jesus said, neither do I, go and sin no more. We love this verse, right? Why? Because Jesus was extending grace and truth to her. He's not the one accusing her. The Bible says that Satan is the one that accuses us, who stands before God and tries to accuse us of our sin over and over again. He wasn't condemning her, but in grace, he was saying, I don't condemn you. But in truth, he was saying, what it was was sin. Now go and sin no more. He didn't say that wasn't sin. You didn't do anything wrong. Just go live the rest of your life free. No, he said, I don't condemn you. There's the grace, but go and sin no more. That's the truth, right? He extended grace and truth to her. And I actually think that he extended grace to these men as well. Because if you noticed, as he was writing the first time, they, they were belligerent with him. Why don't you tell us, Jesus? He's writing their sin. So he stands up and says, fine, go ahead. Any of you without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and started to write. I think he was giving them time 
to get out. Because he could have stood up and been like, Bill, you know what you did. Obadiah, you were with her. You know, he could have exposed him, but he didn't. In his own grace, he stooped back down. And I think it, when we read this story, we, we have to remember that light brings this grace and this truth. It warms and draws you in, but it illuminates the areas of our life that are wrong. You could say it this way, that truth exposes our need to be free and grace enables us to be free. Without truth, we don't know we need to be free. But when Jesus comes in grace, he enables us not to stay stuck in our sin, but get out of our sin to go and sin no more. And you know, it's, it's easy to read this story and I think not see the perspective we need to see in it. Because there's a few different characters in this story. And we have to realize, first of all, all of us were this woman. Every single one of us was caught in our sin. We deserved to die. Yet Jesus in his grace saved us. That's why Romans 5a says that while we were still sinning, we didn't earn it, Christ died for us. While we were caught in our sin, he extended his hand of grace. So we're all that woman. But the danger is, is that we can become those men who were caught in sin, yet now trying to stone the very person who Jesus is trying to save. And I love the way that Jesus puts it in John Eight, a little bit further, same chapter, John 8, 31 and 32. He said, listen, you're truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. If you remain faithful to the word of God, if you remain faithful to my words, what I'm saying to you, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Once you know the truth, you can be free. It's the grace that enables us to walk out of there and say, I don't have to do this anymore. He comes full of grace and truth to receive you where you are, but not to keep you where you are. He comes to help you get free from the chains that bound you. You didn't even know that bound you till light came in and revealed. And this is my prayer. And this is my heart for our church, that we would continue to be a church of grace and truth, just like Jesus, full of grace and truth. A church that says, if you're lost, you can come to the table. If you're broken, you can come to the table. If you're Democrat or Republican, you can come to the table. If you're gay or straight, you can come to the table. If you're caught in adultery or pornography, you can come to the table. If you've been in church your whole life, but you're far from Jesus, you can come to the table. Because Jesus ate with sinners. But it's at the table that he welcomes us and says, eat of my flesh, eat of this bread of life, that once you eat of it, you're transformed, you're free. It's the bread of his word that changes us. How can it change us if we never get to the table? You can come to the table. Listen, grace welcomes you to the table, but truth frees you at the table. And I just pray today that we would not be people who are so focused on truth, we don't bring anybody to the table. Or so focused on grace that we don't let them know that there's the bread of life available to them to transform them from the inside out. All of us needed his grace, but thank God for his truth that saved you and I. We were saved by grace, but freed by truth. Amen. Can we just go to the Lord in prayer? And how I want to end this time is I just want us each to examine our own hearts and say, Holy Spirit, what are you speaking to me? Maybe he's revealing to you today that you've been a person who's just been so grace focused that you never speak the truth. That, that there, there is no moral compass for your life anymore because you focus so much on the grace of Jesus, you don't even know what's right and wrong anymore. 
Or maybe you've swung the pendulum too far the other way and you're so focused on truth that you never receive people in grace. It says God welcomes you to the table to be free, to be healed, to be whole. Maybe you've been using the truth to beat people up and you realize that, I don't know, I've become a little bit of a Pharisee. Maybe God reveals that to you. And whatever area, what I'm asking is whatever he reveals to you, that you would just say, Holy Spirit, help correct that in me. Help bring me back to the place of being full of grace and truth like you were. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak to every single one of us. Correct us where we're wrong. Guide us where we need to be guided, Lord. But let us be a church that is so full of grace and truth that people from all walks of life will experience your beauty, your power, your freedom. Show me, God, show me areas I need to correct that I may be an accurate picture of who you are to people. Maybe you're here today and maybe you're here today and you're at that place where you feel trapped, where you feel caught. Maybe you're caught in one of those sins. Maybe you're caught in something that today you've revealed. the The light is coming into your life and revealing, hey, this is an area you need to be free from. And I'm just telling you today in his grace, the master Jesus Christ has his hand extended to you and says, I don't want to condemn you anymore, but you got to follow me. You got to choose to follow me. You can walk in freedom today. If that's you today, with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just slip your hand up and say, ask me, I want, I, I want to receive the grace of Jesus and walk out of here free. I can see, thank you. Thank you, thank you. I want to lead you in a prayer. And, and especially if, you want, if you're just saying, I want to give my life to Jesus, whether for the first time or you've been far from God and you're coming home today like the prodigal son, his arms are open wide either way. And he said, if you will choose to follow me, I will free you. I'm not going to leave you where you are. I've got a life plan for you. It starts with this decision. I want to lead you in this prayer. It's not the prayer that saves you. It's what you mean in your heart and what you confess with your mouth today. And I'm going to ask all of us to pray this prayer with those who are making this decision just to help them out. Just say, Jesus, I come to you. I receive your grace. I receive your truth. Forgive me for doing things my way. I choose your way. And I commit to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Can we celebrate with those people that made that decision for Jesus today? Thanks for joining us today. I pray this message encouraged you, inspired you, and maybe even challenged you a little bit. If you made a decision for Jesus, we are celebrating with you. Welcome to the family of God. We would love to know about it. So message us online or you can text yes card to 903-200-3808 and let us know what decision you made. We wanna come alongside you, help you find a local church. It's very important to be connected to the local body of Christ, whether with us or somewhere else. So let us know so we can help you and let you know your next steps with Jesus. I'd love to see you real soon in person, but until then, know that I'm praying for you. I'm praying God's best in your life. God bless you.